Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena everyone. I hope you're having a great week and I'm so pleased you're with me again today. Um, super pleased to bring to you this conversation that I had with Dr. Stuart Gray, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow in the Institute of Cardiovascular and Medical Sciences. Stuart and I discussed in detail the role of omega-3 fatty acids in aging muscle with muscle function and muscle health and I have to say it was a great conversation that I had with Stuart and also really eye-opening as to the possible roles that other nutrients play in muscle function outside of protein and if anyone knows me or follows me on Instagram you'll know that I bang on about protein and amino acids all of the time because of their importance in the health and the recovery of our musculoskeletal tissue and of course Omega-3s are super important with reducing inflammation and cardiovascular disease health and improving metabolic health. And it wasn't until I listened to a presentation that Dr. Gray gave at the most recent international conference of exercise and sports nutrition that I realized that there's this whole other area of how different nutrients affect muscle health. And so I jumped on, emailed him, and he was super generous to give up his time to chat to me about that topic. So a brief bio on Dr. Gray. He graduated from the University of Glasgow with a BSc in Physiology and Sports Science and subsequently completed a PhD in Exercise Physiology from the University of Strathclyde. After his postdoctoral positions at Strathclyde and at Loughborough University, Dr. Gray was appointed to a lectureship at the University of Aberdeen and it was in 2015 he took up a position in the Institute of Cardiovascular and Medical Sciences at the University of Glasgow and we talk all about how he got into the field looking at uh, omega-3 and health, particularly coming from exercise physiology with a, with a bit of a focus on sport and performance. Now at the time of the interview it was just before Christmas, I believe it was December, and over in his neck of the woods, they'd just gone back into lockdown. So it was a trying time, I imagine, um, and still is, let's face it. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stuart Gray. Good morning, Dr. Gray. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. I noticed you had a hot water bottle on your lap. I do. I do. Yeah, the heating's not quite kicked in yet this morning, so. <laughs> it, I, I appreciate it's quite early, whereas you can see here with me, it's what summer's finally kicked in in Auckland and it is hot, but also it's actually, it's not too late. It's like quarter to nine or something, which is not too bad. It's not too bad, it's not too bad if you're a night owl. Um, 
So I had or have already, you know, introduced you and your research interests and, and where you're from. And I was really interested in your talk that you gave at that recent international um, sport and exercise nutrition science conference. And I've probably mucked up the acronym because I'm a little bit verbally dyslexic. But um, <laughs> um, and, I, and this is what I really wanted to chat to, to you about today. And when I jumped on ResearchGate, I could see that a lot of your research interests kind of lie in that muscle function, skeletal health and, and metabolic health, which is something which um, I'm really passionate about when I talk to people about a lot about how that they are able to kind of maintain muscle function and muscle strength as they age. And you've probably heard people talk about muscle being the organ of longevity, you know, and then if we can keep that muscle function and keep that muscle mass as we age, then it's likely that our overall health outcomes are, are going to be better off. And of course, you're in the thick of it doing a lot of the research around that stuff. Um, can you kind of kick us off by kind of telling me how you, yeah, how you got into the field and, and what your background is? Yes, yeah, no problem. So my original degree was a physiology and sports science degree at Glasgow University. And I think probably as most sports science students coming into university, back then it was quite new still, sports science. It wasn't really a as big a thing. There was very few sports scientists around. And I think as with most people, I probably went in thinking I would do something with a football club or I would be a sports scientist uh, for a top athlete around the world. And then as I got into the, through the kind of course, as we progressed, I mean, that was still an option, but I started to find that my interest was more actually how all this worked. It was mm -hmm. a more curiosity, curiosity driven. Uh, and then when the final year project came around, doing that research where you were the first one to study something, even though in your undergraduate project, it's quite a, a simple thing. Still the process of, uncovering new data and figuring figuring out what it meant was, whoa, this is really quite interesting for me. This is good. Uh, so that kind of spurred me on to do a PhD. Uh, and the PhD I did was still performance type related. We looked at how if you change muscle temperature, how you can alter the performance of muscle tissue and the kind of metabolism of muscle that would fuel the contraction. Mm -hmm. A lot of my work was around we did a lot of wing gate sprints the, the, and muscle biopsies. So the uh, participants for the studies loved it. Uh, sprinting in a bike all out for six seconds and then somebody jabbing them in the leg with a big, big needle. They, they were very happy, happy participants. Uh, recruitment was a challenge for that. And, and we found some very interesting stuff. And a lot of that work actually was taken on further by my supervisor and his colleagues and developed things like if you see the cyclists now at kind of events on the track they put on these big trousers mm. where, they've, where they've actually got heated elements in the trousers to keep the muscle warm so it can maintain mm. muscle power uh, because if you do a warm-up as an athlete then by the time you actually get the prep done and you sit on the bike and you wait and do all that your muscle temperatures dropped again but we yeah. found muscle temperature was very important for short duration power stuff so so they've developed these pants so that you go on and it's kind of like a hot water bottle or a more like a hot water a, a heated blanket wrapped yeah. around your legs to keep the muscle temperature up. So it's still very interesting stuff. But after that, I kind of, I did a bit of postdoc looking at inflammation and the importance of things like IL-6 for metabolism. And I did a, 
I was involved in a trial in the west of Scotland looking at if we can get people to do more walking, how that can improve health. And all that kind of came together to start to make me really get interested more, less in the athlete performance side and more in the, the health side of things. And actually, muscle is not only important for performance, but actually it's back then it was starting to get more prominence for... That's really, it's quite important all round, actually, muscle. It's not just a, a sporting organ. It's mm. used for a lot of things. And the most obvious area for that was, was aging. Mm. So I started to move into aging and looking at exercise and lifestyle and aging uh, up in Aberdeen, where I was before I moved down to Glasgow. And then in Glasgow, with a big metabolic health group, it started to also move into the kind of metabolic health and type 2 diabetes uh, mm. area as well. So that's a kind of general overview of how my my kind of path has been. It's not all been planned. A lot of it's been <laughs> following what's going on and making random choices here and there and seeing what happens. But that's kind of, I've ended up here on the yeah. back of that. Yeah. And any kind of key findings along the way, which kind of like flicked a switch or do you really think um, kind of influence your um, interests or your next decisions on what you would kind of do with it or any surprises? To be honest, often the way, the way it's worked for me, it's not necessarily been surprise findings, but surprise funding more than anything else. And mm-hmm. that I've had a few ideas and I've put out funding and the one that has been funded is the one that I've progressed, obviously. Uh, and I've, I've sometimes been surprised as to what one has been selected for funding. I remember early on applying for a few grants and two or three of them I thought I'd done really well. And then there was one I kind of done on a bit of a spot of the moment and put it in. And then it got funded and the other three didn't. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> some more surprises, surprises like that. I mean, probably the most surprising finding we might come to talk about that a bit more has been my more recent findings, which I've I've been quite surprised about when we've done the work with the omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah. Uh, I didn't necessarily, even though there has been published work to support this idea and hypothesis, I still necessarily didn't think that we would see the findings that, that we did. Yeah. Really. It was interesting when I was... Um when I came across your presentation and started watching it because you know when we think about muscle health and muscle function of course the things that come to mind in terms of dietary factors amino acids leucine and and protein intake and and things like that and and when your talk was in and around that omega-3 fatty acids that really kind of sparked something um so what what was it that kind of led you down that path? Was that one of your surprise, one of your kind of spur of the moment might just chuck this research grant in and see what goes or? Yeah, so I mean, it was up in Aberdeen. I was kind of starting to move into the aging field with my, mm-hmm. my research. I was also doing a little bit of work at the same time with kind of interval training and metabolic health as well. And I had probably those two streams on the go and I was kind of, seeing which one seeing which one was the most fruitful and where, where I was most likely to get and I was talking to so up in Aberdeen they've got a, an institute called the Rowett Institute of Nutrition I, I don't know if you're aware of it so they, they do obviously a lot of nutrition work it started off as animal nutrition mm. it was a big animal nutrition unit so they did the farms up there and they did a lot of animal nutrition before over the last few years they've moved into more human nutrition so I was talking to uh, a colleague at the Rowett who'd done a lot of animal work looking at omega-3 fatty acids. Mm. So in that 
presentation, I talked a little bit about a lot of the work done in the States, looking at healthy steers and piglets, where they'd fed omega-3 fatty acids. And they're obviously doing this in animal work, one, from an animal health point of view, which is important, but also they want to grow bigger tissue because bigger muscle tissue is more meat to sell and mm. make it more an efficient, cost-effective process. And she was telling me about her work. Oh, you're interested in muscle Stuart. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we do some stuff with omega-3 in animals and we're starting to find these, what we perceive to be improvements in whole body protein metabolism and glucose disposal that are probably relevant for, for muscle. And she'd found changes to mTOR and these kind of factors that were relevant for muscle. And I thought, oh, so we, based on that discussion, we pulled together my kind of very first omega-3 study mm. and at that point I was eligible for new investigator funding from the BBSRC and we had done a bit of the pilot work with an animal study she had ongoing we did some more tissue analysis from the muscles we did some cell culture work and then we went to BBSRC and said let's move this into humans mm. and this was my first kind of big grant application that I'd kind of put forward. So it was looking at omega-3 supplementation along with exercise in older people. Mm. They, rejected, they rejected the grant first time, but said, we really like the idea. If you can get some pilot data just to give us a bit more confidence, then we'll, we'll look at it again and possibly fund it. So I pulled, got one of my PhD students and they did a kind of small scale exercise training study in older people with resistance training and omega-3. Found an indication of quite a positive effect, which probably was one of my surprise findings. Uh, and then sent the application in and it was funded again, which was very much a surprise finding because I think anyone applying for grants never, well, certainly not me, I, I never expect them to get funded. The default position is it will be rejected. Mm. And then, yeah, the bonus is, it paints quite a sad picture of academia, but sadly that's with, with acceptance rates of 15% or something like that, then that's... That's that's where we are. So yeah, so that was kind of how I got into the omega three fatty acid uh, muscle area. It was a kind of chance conversation with a colleague. Mm, okay. And a and a corridor that kind of led to led to pulling her her ideas together, and my ideas together to to come up with this, and then we kind of kept pushed on with it. Yeah. So can you describe the the details of the study, Stuart? Yeah. So yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been a while since I looked at this, so my numbers may be slightly off, but we aimed for 60 older men and women. I mean, mm. we tried to make sure we got an even amount of men and women because there was some data to indicate from the epidemiological work that women may be, have a more beneficial effect than men for mm. the omega-3 fatty acids based on cross-sectional epidemiological data. So it wasn't entirely strong data, but... And, I, and regardless of that, I think it's important to have equal split of men and women in these studies anyway. So we got them and we did resistance exercise training twice a week. So half of them were randomized to receive fish oil supplements, mm -hmm. half of them to uh, placebo oil, mm. uh, which was, a, I think it was olive oil we used in that study. It was something that wouldn't change the fatty acid content. So it was like a high oleic acid, which is high in the diet anyway. So it doesn't... Mm didn't change the fatty acid composition in the in the cells and we trained them for 16 weeks twice a week doing resistance training and we before and after we made measurements of muscle mass 
we were lucky enough to have access to an MRI scanner so we could mm. do robust measurements of muscle mass and we did muscle strength. We took some blood samples and we measured kind of more metabolic markers and things like the omega-3 fatty acid content in the red cells. We did take some muscle biopsies near the end. We did a we did a small nested study where we looked at muscle protein synthesis uh, kind of over a three-day period mm. where we included exercise uh, in there as well. So that was the kind of main things we measured in there. So it was quite, a, for the postdoc, it was quite a challenging study to run because all the exercise was fully supervised as well. Mm-hmm. So the logistics of getting the older people to the lab, supervising them, getting them home, uh, two sessions a week for 16 weeks for mm. 60 people. So it was it was a lot of work <clears throat> went into it. So it took three years to get done. And what we found in that study, which which probably were quite surprising in the magnitude of effect was quite surprising. But bear in mind, it was a small study. So I think further work is needed to really confirm this. And the men, basically, we found no effect of the omega-3 fatty acids. With mm. exercise exercise in the control group, increased muscle mass, increased muscle strength, same degree in the omega-3 fatty acid group. No, no real difference. And the women we found that the kind of gains in muscle strength mm. were almost double in the fish oil group compared to the control oil group hmm. which was quite a surprising finding what was more surprising was that there was no difference in muscle mass hmm. so the gains in muscle mass were the same and both so what we had was with an increase in muscle quality mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is with the fish oil stuff is something that is very interesting and in that the mechanisms underlying this are, they often do surprise me. One thing we often thought it would be, it would be an anti-inflammatory effect of these, yeah. so-called anti-inflammatory effect of these omega-3 fatty acids. In all the human stuff we've done and in that study, we measured inflammatory markers and there's no effect. There's no difference. Mostly probably because the older people we're including are relatively healthy. So they yeah. possibly don't have much of this low-grade inflammation. We thought it would be a muscle protein synthesis effect at this point because there was the work from Bettina Mietendorfer's lab that showed that fish oil would increase muscle protein synthesis during a kind of hyper-insulinemic, hyper-aminoacidemic clamp. So when kind of mimicking a fed state, but we found in our sub-study, which wasn't perfect, looking at protein synthesis, there was no difference, which matched with the fact that muscle mass hadn't changed in, in these women. So it seemed to be a strength point of view. Mm. Whether that was something neuromuscular, because things like DHA can incorporate into nerve cell membranes and can, can improve, there's some evidence they can improve neuromuscular function. We don't know from that data because uh, we didn't make any recording of it because our thought was it was going to be the muscle protein synthesis and muscle yeah. mass that was going to be driving the effects. So so that was that that was that study. But where it is interesting as well is that most of the study that's not looked at exercise, it's just looked at omega-3 supplementation with people going about their daily daily levels of activity. Mm they do find increases in muscle strength and increases in muscle mass as well and increases in muscle protein synthesis. So there possibly is a bit of a disconnect somehow between when people are exercising, 
and when it's just given under habitual daily living kind of activity levels, which is, I think, from a mechanistic point of view, very interesting. What what could be driving that? I, to be honest, I, I have no idea whether exercise by itself such a potent stimulus for muscle protein synthesis that there's no other gain that could be got in that, but there's still gains that could be had in the strength side. I don't know. And that was kind of our thoughts of why we possibly saw the effect in women because certainly in that group, and this isn't a universal finding because some people don't find this in, in our group, and I can't remember the exact figures, but say the control group, the men increased muscle strength by about 25% mm. over the course of the, the training study. The women increased by about 10, 15%. So the women weren't in that group anyway, didn't seem to get such a robust increase. So the possibility is we found the effect in women just because they had a bit more room for wiggle up the top so there was a bit more room for movement whereas the men the training we had done with them was sufficient to kind of fully saturate their response and they were they were as, as good as they were going to get mm. uh, i mean older people in general don't respond as well as a young person can you explain why that is Stuart? like what happens with the muscle tissue over time or aging yeah, so I mean, we don't know we don't know exactly what's causing it, but with older tissue and older people in general, there's a, a definite anabolic resistance mm. uh, is what we would call it, and it's it's to all to all I say all anabolic anabolic stimuli. There's not an awful lot of anabolic stimuli out there, mm. but exercise and amino acids, as we talked about kind of earlier, are the main anabolic stimuli. And if you do exercise or you feed an older person. And you look at the protein synthesis response acutely, then it's a lot lower in an older person than it is in a younger person. And with a protein supplement point of view, there has been evidence that if you give a higher dose of protein per meal, you can get that response up a little bit. So an older person requires more protein per meal mm. to stimulate a, a, a more similar response to a young person. So if you give... 15 grams per meal, young and old, you'll get a still a pretty robust response in the young folk. It might not be full, but almost to the top, whereas the older people, it'll be, hmm. whereas if you gave 15 grams to the young and 30 grams to the old, mm. they would start to get more similar. Uh, exercise has not been such a, it's not so easy to do the dose response type stuff and because there's so many factors with exercise, intensity, number of reps, number of sets, these kind of things, but we see we definitely see that resistance and then even in the long term there's been some studies from carolyn Gregg's one that comes to mind where the resistance trained older women and they looked at they did the mris of muscle mass and muscle strength and the response was and the fact the figures would wouldn't be exact but the responses would be 20 25 percent less in the older group compared to the younger group so there's a definite it's not just an acute anabolic resistance. It is a long-term anabolic resistance in that older tissue is not, not responding appropriately. And why that is, we don't know. A lot of people have looked at the, <clears throat> the more molecular sides of things. And I mean, the, the molecular pathways that drive protein synthesis are similarly reduced in older people. But, but why that is, 
that that's the bit that we don't we don't really know and it's, it is the bit that a lot of people are are, are working on to try and figure out mm. and I think you get that with a lot of new well, enzyme activity and nutrients and stuff as you age you your kind of digestive ability kind of diminishes and your ability to uptake nutrients kind of diminishes as well and do not this is completely on a tangent but I find it really interesting that nutrient requirements don't really reflect this so there's not a lot of difference in nutrient requirement well there is of course with some nutrients but you know particularly protein there's no real difference between uh, protein intake recommendations across the board once you're an adult notwithstanding the fact that they're probably all a bit low uh, anyway um no i i do find it as surprising because i mean there's so much evidence now that the older people are resistant in lots of ways I, I focused on the muscle but as you, you mentioned the digestive and the, the bioavailability of these things interesting with amino acids there's been a few studies from Luke Van Loon and it, it, the amino acids do seem to get into the circulation just as well mm. and also, but it, it primarily does seem to be a muscle a muscle issue for that nutrient anyway yeah it is surprising and I know I don't know whether it's a simplicity point of view that they they don't want to overcomplicate these recommendations by saying, oh, once you get to this age, you need to do this. And once you're at that age, I don't know. I, I've never been involved in these kind of things, but I do, I do, I do appreciate that these people have got a very hard job to make yeah. public recommendations, particularly just now over the pandemic period, I've appreciated it even more that I really wouldn't like to be in the position where I make these decisions for people we can all be armchair decision makers and yeah. give people advice but uh, it's not as easy as it obviously the, the pandemic's more extreme than protein recommendations but overall nutrient and activity recommendations is a it's a balance between science and what people will do and what people will understand and not overcomplicating things and uh, and stuff like that so it's a, it's a challenging one that I yeah. wouldn't like to criticise, but I, I, I agree that they probably could. I think there could be some age-specific guidance in there that mm-hmm. would be useful. Um, Stuart, with regards to the amount of um, omega-3 fatty acids, so you so did you supplement with the EPA and DHA combined, and, and how much were they getting each day? So it was EPA and DHA. They were EPA-rich supplements we were using. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was on the basis of our, I mean, quite a bit of work. Actually, some of the animal work that my colleague had done originally, it indicated that it was the amount of EPA getting into the muscle tissue that was driving the changes in protein metabolism and glucose disposal that she was finding. Mm. Uh, we also, when we did, we did the PhD student that ran the pilot work on that study, did some cell culture work. And she found that EPA from a muscle protein synthesis point of view was having a greater effect on protein synthesis and protein breakdown compared to DHA. Mm. So on that basis, we went for an EPA rich supplement. Now the, the exact numbers. That's all right. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to just quietly pretend like I'm not looking up on Google just now. <laughs> Uh, at the same time as speaking to, I want to say we gave people, uh, it was about four grams per day of fish oil mm. we gave them. But this is where these kind of things are not that useful because you say to somebody, oh, we gave four grams fish oil, but four grams fish oil of a 
of a supplement that's very low in EPA and DHA because you can get some that it's like 50 milligrams per gram EPA uh, or you get some that is 900 milligrams per gram. So telling people how much fish oil gave is not an overly useful thing. So we gave, though it was actually three grams a day we gave, but it was a very concentrated supplement. So they were getting 2.1 grams of EPA per day and 0.6 grams DHA per mm. day is what we were we gave them for the 16 week period so not enough not in the highest amount of fish oil but a relatively high amount of the omega-3 fatty acids themselves the 2.1 grams per day yeah. EPA is quite a lot yeah and i imagine that you would have controlled for their dietary intake of fish or like fatty fish and and things like that so were there any diet recommendations given to the groups or we the only thing we did was we restricted people on entry to not being high consumers of oily fish so we had a restriction that they couldn't consume i think it was more than one portion of oily fish a day mm -hmm. eh, not a day a week a week mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> which to be honest and well actually in aberdeen there is quite a lot because aberdeen's got a lot of the fishing industry in scotland there is reasonable and in older people, there is reasonable oily fish consumption. Uh, but in younger people in the UK, mm. oily fish consumption is pretty, pretty, pretty poor. So it's not normally that hard to find these people. And then we didn't, we didn't want to change people's diet or give any other recommendations. We just wanted to give them the capsules and keep everything else the same. So what we did was we just got them to monitor fish consumption, oily and non-oily fish. So we gave them a fish diary. Mm. And we recorded how much they consume just to make sure that, you know, it's like when you do these studies that you say, well, we're looking at a study with fish oil and we give them the diet and then all of a sudden they all start eating tons of oily fish every day because they think it's good for them. Yeah. Thankfully, that wasn't the case in this study. Uh, we did see what you often see in these studies that when we then looked at the omega-3 fatty acid in the red blood cells, there was clearly some people in the fish oil group that hadn't taken the supplements and there was some people in the control group that's EPA and DHA levels had gone up massively they clearly mm. had been dabbling with their own supplements or they'd been taking a lot more oily fish but there was nothing major and I, th I think with with a lot of nutrients it's quite hard to to monitor but because we can measure relatively easily in the red blood cells we can measure the EPA and DHA levels is it's relatively easy to track if people have been compliant or if they've been non-compliant and and how effective it's been. Whereas things like don't even like protein supplementation, there's not an easy biomarker that you can measure to see mm. if somebody has been taking it and how much they've been taking. You've got to rely on their self-report recorded dietary intake, which we know can be pretty hard to get good data from. Mm, sure. And your, in your research in and around the topic area, um, in your talk, you mentioned some um, observational epidemiological studies, which looked at um, just fish intake in, in older people and, and muscle function. Can you kind of describe what some of the main findings were there? And was your study finding in line with, with that epidemiological research? Yeah, so the epidemiological stuff... Uh... The first study was from the Hertfordshire study, uh, which was a few thousand people. Uh, and this was probably the first study that really had looked at the associations of 
diet in general with a kind of muscle strength marker? Because most of the most of the work in the kind of epidemiological area wasn't really focusing on grip strength. There wasn't really at that point a great kind of desire to look at that because it wasn't seen as an important outcome. Yeah, there was a lot more important stuff than muscle going on all the other, uh, for, for obvious reasons, cardiovascular mm. disease and the cancers and these kind of things tend to get the, the bigger hit. But So this study found that when they looked at all the nutrients, so they looked in, the, in that study, they had the kind of foods, but also the macronutrients as well. And interestingly, what they had was grip strength because it's easy to measure in big numbers of people from an mm. epidemiological point of view. So most of the epidemiological work is, is grip strength based, which you could argue people often say it's a marker of whole body muscle strength. Some people disagree with that generally. I think it's a, it's a marker of muscle strength and lots of other stuff as well in there that can be done in big numbers of people. It's pretty much, it's, it's one of the only things you're going to really be able to do easily with people uh, and what they found was of all the nutrients and all the macronutrients there and all the foods consumed fatty fish consumption was the only food item to be positively and consistently associated with grip strength things like protein and stuff didn't come out massively in in that study and they tried to adjust for most of the kind of confounders that they could possibly do that but it's still not perfect so that was a kind of interesting, obviously though fatty fish itself has more than just omega-3 fatty mm. acids, a good source of protein, there's vitamin D in there, there's, there's lots going on in there that could be driving it, but I think it's a useful indicator that actually maybe there is something going on with omega-3 fatty acids that we could, we could look at and you can generate a hypothesis as to why uh, you would think it would be useful. And then along with the animal study, it all kind of came together to, to, to this more uh, physiological human work uh, and, and we repeated something similar recently with a bigger epidemiological study same limitations as the previous study obviously like a bigger sample size doesn't magically go over the limitations of of this data uh, and we found the same thing in both men and women fatty fish consumption was the most consistently positively associated with with grip strength so it's definitely consistently associated with it. And I mean, things like one of there's, there's obviously the major confounders that you can't, we try to get rid of these things, but people that consume a lot of fatty fish are, are generally going to be probably better off and have a better lifestyle in general. It, it's not the kind of food that you'll see consumed in very deprived areas of Glasgow, for example, that's not, it's not a thing. So it could, there is still the possibility that it's just a marker of good diet, well-off people that have got a good lifestyle in general, mm. even if we try and adjust for these things as much as we can. But I'm, it's strengthened by the fact that we now have these findings from interventional randomized controlled trials. So it kind of does make me think that that data was, it probably was showing us what we thought it was showing us back then. Yeah. And Stuart, your so if fatty fish intake could lead to an improvement in muscle strength or muscle function, what recommendation could 
you kind of give around that say if someone was like hey you know what's the best recommendation in and around how much fatty fish i should be consuming i mean it's, it's hard to make a make a definite recommendation based i mean obviously again this is where you get into the complexities of the different sources i've got different amounts of omega-3 if they're farmed or not farmed and and these kind of things and and you do still have in some groups the pregnant women for example the the worry of over consuming oily fish uh, as well there are still some some potential issues with that so i mean i think a, a ballpark you're probably looking to get equivalent levels of epa and dha that we are seeing in the study i would think you're probably talking about the three portions of oily fish a week if not getting up towards four mm. portions of oily fish. i mean the current recommendations in the uk are two oily fish portions a week mm. not more than that i think probably you're looking at closer to the to the three if not getting up towards four to, to get these effects but we've not carried these studies out like uh <clears throat> it's not been like a drug study where we've titrated the dose or anything like yeah. that because it's hard to do so Another thing I think would be interesting is one to do a comparison between the supplements and the the real foods, because I think that would be very interesting to do, but also to try and figure out actually what is the minimal dose that, that we actually need. I mean, maybe we are dosing these people far too much with these supplements uh, and we don't need all this. And actually, if people just consume the two portions that are recommended, maybe they would still get the same gains in muscle mass and muscle strength. But but we don't know. So I think looking at that would be something very interesting to, to do. But anything, this is where one of the problems, anything with muscle strength and muscle mass is a really hard thing to do because it takes so long to change. Yeah. You can't do, you can't just do a two-week study and see anything. And with omega-3s, it takes a while to get into the tissues as well. So you've got that added added length you really need before you can you can study it. and looking at muscle protein synthesis acutely and these things is interesting and it helps us understand the underlying processes but i'm always hesitant to extrapolate that to changes in muscle mass yeah particularly muscle, muscle strength because they don't directly correlate with each other there's a lot more going on uh, in, in the long term so I, you kind of need to do the long-term studies to look at that yeah, uh, yeah. and once you just different doses and you're looking at multiple comparisons your sample size gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it ends up being a an epic but i i, I kind of think all oh, with omega threes that we've got data that they do stuff in i mean my most recent stuff and we can talk about that a bit more i can give more detail it's 100 people bettina meetendorfer's work was i think it was about 60 people so we've got reasonable sample size studies and older people that show effects on muscle strength and muscle mass of mm. these supplements i think we are kind of we're at the stage where we could do these big studies there's the data that i think supports doing a big big study in this to actually see because i think clinicians and medical uh, advice boards will not rec on the basis of these studies are not going to change recommendations no. but i think these studies give us the impetus and the data to support the big studies that would change the recommendations so i think that's kind of where we need to go and in those studies you can start to look at the minimal doses and stuff yeah uh, and see well as when you mentioned the difference between male and female in my head i'm like oh do the males need more to get the same 
response as females um, rather than, you know, are, are you across the board kind of dosing too much? You're, you mentioned the difference between, in the potential difference of the omega-3 content between farmed and, and not farmed. But what's the data around that? Do you, or yeah, what's the information? Because I know that in here in New Zealand, a lot of our you know, salmon, for example, is farmed. Like it's, unless you're out kind of catching it yourself, it's actually quite, yeah. or, or it's in a can, in a can, you know, you don't get that fresh salmon that's not. Yeah, I mean, in, in general, I mean, it depends a lot on the, and it's a, it's a big area of research, actually, the feed of these farmed fish as well to try and maximise the nutrient content. But in general, it is quite a bit lower and mm. farmed rather than rather than fresh and i think a, a lot of it i mean it's not my definitely not my area of expertise i think a lot of it is the feed that's given to to the fish mm. what are what are they what are they eating is what's driving these differences and i think it's an area that a lot of kind of aquaculture animal feed type people are looking at to try and get get the farmed fish to have a nutrient content that's more similar to the to the non-farmed fish to mm. try and maximize the, the kind of beneficial effects of of these things mm. and um, vegetarian sources of the longer chain fatty acids like do you have an opinion as to their efficacy uh, I've there's not been anything on them but I can see no reason why they would have any if they've got EPA and DHA in them mm. I see no reason why they wouldn't be incorporated into the cell membranes in a similar way. They might be slightly slower, slightly faster, mm. but overall they, they, um, they'll get in there and I'm pretty sure they would have the same effect. So I, I think the source is probably not not a major a major issue. Yeah. We've moved to start doing some stuff with krill oil compared to the compared to the fish oil. And we're finding in the couple of studies we've done, we're finding the the exact same effect and with the krill oil and the fish oil you can play about with the dose and you can you can get away with we seem to be able to get away with slightly less epa and dha mm. in the krill oil we think because it's incorporated more readily because it is more phospholipid and less triglyceride form so it's more readily taken up uh, into the into the tissue but yeah so I, I don't think the source is uh is going to be a major a major thing so which is good because it means i think people can make choices on because with fish oil there's obviously issues about sustainability mm. which krill oil and and again I, I don't know the ins and outs but krill oil is potentially more sustainable from that point of view but then you've obviously got people growing the algal oils mm. to get dha and i know philip calder was talking about it and i've seen some stuff where they are they're trying to genetically modify crops mm. so that grain and stuff like that will produce the omega-3 fatty acids in them which they don't naturally produce hmm. so i think it's good because it can give people vegetarians might want to take the algal oil hmm. people that don't mind gm might want but their vegetarian might want to do that people that are people that don't give two hoots might just want to take the fish oil so it gives people 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 options and, and i think it if it does become mainstream the fish oil for this point of view probably as we've seen with the protein it will become an issue because most supplements now have to have some sort of vegan option or mm. at least a vegetarian option or these kind of things because it is for the consumer it's clearly an issue that is important to them so yeah. i think uh, i think it's good 
that the source doesn't seem to make much of a difference. And Stuart, with regards to the macronutrient content of your participants and their protein load, is there anything, any relationship between the amount of protein that they consume plus the fish oil uh, in relation to uh, the fish oil being more or less beneficial? So those maybe on a lower protein might get more benefit from the fish oil or, or n not at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's interesting because the when we go back, to, if I go back to the kind of initial animal work, I remember talking to talking to the the researcher that was doing that, and and her data was indicating that whether whether they needed protein, but the effects of the omega three fatty acids were seen under conditions of high amino acids and high mm. uh, high insulin. So feeding, they were seen in a fed state, basically, and not in a basal state. And then that was replicated in, in the Bettina Mietendorfer's work, where they did uh, looked at the muscle protein synthesis, and they looked at it under hyperaminoacidemic, hyperinsulinemic clamps. So they found omega-3 fatty acids didn't affect basal muscle protein synthesis, but when they, they did this clamp, which was raising amino acids and raising insulin levels, they found the beneficial, they found the, the kind of stimulatory effect of the omega-3 fatty acids there. Mm. Uh, so acutely, it, did, it possibly indicated that there was potentially an interactive effect. Nobody, as far as I'm aware, has looked at a omega-3 alone and an omega-3 plus protein mm. supplementation, which I think would be interesting. Uh, I mean, there is data from Kevin Tipton did a study where they looked at omega-3 fatty acids and they looked at the protein synthesis response to exercise where they also fed them protein mm. and they found no effect of the omega-3 fatty acids and their thinking was that it was possible because they gave them 30 grams of protein that they'd fully, they'd maximised the response already. Yeah. Uh, protein synthesis. So it could be there's a kind of balance in there somewhere. Mm. I think would be interesting to look at in our study. So if I look at the, the most recent study, which was our krill oil study, which is not, is not yet published, uh, and we're still kind of looking at the data fully. So in that study, we there was no exercise in that study, and we gave people the krill oil for six months. Older people, again, all over 65, all still relatively healthy, which I think is important. And we found similarly to with the fish oil in between a meat and doffers lab, we found increases in muscle mass, muscle strength, and it was a treatment effect for muscle strength, for grip strength, and the extensor strength of about 10%, which mm. I think is pretty big with no exercise involved. Uh, muscle mass, it was closer to about the 2% we found, which is still pretty big for changing muscle muscle mass and it is in line with what was found with fish oil so in that study because we had reasonable numbers of people we started to play about with looking at predictors of the response so in the krill oil group we started to look at who who was getting the biggest gains with the krill oil we looked at protein intake and we didn't find any association as an association though so it doesn't necessarily for me that doesn't rule out that there could be an interaction there still could be 
because this data it does become a bit messy yeah uh, when you start looking at it. so no nutrients really seem to be be driving it so it wasn't people with low protein or high protein that were getting the benefits of the krill oil uh, what we did find quite consistently was those that had the biggest gains in muscle strength and muscle mass were those that had the lowest physical function at baseline mm. which is kind of interesting going forward it's kind of maybe maybe what you would have expected but it's not it's not actually always what's found even with exercise you don't find that the people that had the lowest function get the biggest gain that's not Mm. not necessarily how it works often those people actually are the most resistant to exercise and they don't get the biggest gains so it's not always the way uh, but it's an interesting finding for me and I think in that study as well there was no male-female difference as well because we had the numbers to really look at that but I think that's interesting going forward because it gives us a bit of hope and that this might well still work in populations that really could benefit from this yeah as in those with, those with sarcopenia because the people we studied and the people that Bettina Mietendorfer studied didn't have sarcopenia they were all relatively well functioning older people yeah uh, we still saw the gains which are good and particularly good from a prevention point of view because if we can stop them getting to become sarcopenic with fish oil yeah that's great that's brilliant uh but from a treatment point of view I think the next stage is to look in people that actually have a physical function deficit whether it's diagnosed sarcopenia or just muscle weakness or mm. some, some physical limitation to begin with and and see if we can see the beneficial effects and I think that's an area where we could really really see some benefit uh, because there was another study I you might not have seen it that that came out and I can't remember the name of it it was published quite recently and they did a big study a year-long study in 2000 people mm where they gave them fish oil only one gram per day for the year yes uh, and i can send you over the details if you can't find it but they also were looking at exercise fish oil and vitamin d i think that's all they were looking at they, it was a factorial design study and they They'd, out, they'd a variety of outcomes like blood pressure. They'd seven outcomes. I can't remember them all. They had blood pressure, but from a physical function point of view, they had the short performance physical battery test, which is the four meter walk time, balance tests, and chair, and chair rise. Mm. And you can, you can score people. And interestingly, that study, they found no effect of fish oil on anything at all, any of the measurements, including the physical function measurements. But and they say this in their own study as well, which is a shame because it's such a big study and it must have been a lot of effort that the people they recruited, so this short performance physical battery test, you can score it. And I think the top score is 12. All their people at baseline had scores of, I think the average was something like 11.5. Oh, mate. Yeah. So there was, there was, no and they pre they, they, they've done it, they've done it correctly and they've done it very robustly and they pre-specified everything mm -hmm. and they said that we were going to look at that and we're going to do this and and they obviously didn't find an effect because you can't you can't improve on people that are maxing out the scores yeah uh, and I, it's good that they did it robustly because what a lot of people would have done then is that they wouldn't have 
said that they said they were going to look at the score and they would have they would have went in and because you can look in that test and you you can look at gate speed yeah. you can look at the time at chair rising you possibly would have still seen a bit of an effect in there mm-hmm. possibly not but by scoring it like that they were never going to see an effect from baseline so it must have when they when they did the baseline assessments they must have killed them when they saw this those scores because they thought oh, oh, you go damn. one over they still had the other outcomes like blood pressure and other things they could have looked at uh but again, that to me highlighted that we possibly we probably need to take this into people that aren't scoring 11, 12 on this short performance physical battery test. We want people that are scoring five and six down yeah. at down at that level and see if we can we can see a benefit yeah. uh, in there. Because that's the thing, right? You you alluded to it that you know in this age group, the fact that there is a small improvement outside of physical exercise is massive considering that the, the trajectory is to lose muscle as we age, and particularly if you're not physically active. Um, Stuart, can you just define sarcopenia for people who might not be familiar with the term? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So sarcopenia is the... It was originally the age-related loss of muscle mass, mm. but it's now been kind of redefined to be the age-related loss of muscle function and mass. Mm. Uh, so function is taking more prominence in the, the diagnosis of it now. Yeah. And that, quite rightly so, people, people are interested in their muscle mass, but really older people, everybody, not just older people, wants to get about and move, mm. and muscle function is clearly more important for that. Yeah. Uh, so there's... There's diagnostic criteria where somebody with a low grip strength, which is less than 26 kilograms for men and 17 kilograms for women, mm-hmm. it could be 27 and 16. I may be getting my numbers wrong there. Uh, and then there's that's probable sarcopenia. And then if they also have a low muscle mass measured by ideally by DEXA then that's somebody has sarcopenia and then there's also another added bit on that if they also have low walking pace or another kind of more functional measurement then they're classified as having severe sarcopenia mm, okay uh, and yeah i think you're, you're definitely it's obviously something we want to stop because the outcomes the risk of falls the risk of hospitalization the risk of mortality outcomes is massive in sarcopenia the the excess healthcare costs of muscle weakness in the UK were shown to be some, I think the excess costs were something like three billion pounds a year. Oh, mate. So it's got a massive economic cost as well uh, in there. So it's something clearly we want to avoid. And never mind the fact that the person, the quality of life of the person that has it can decrease because they can't go to the shops, can't go and see their grandkids as easily, all these things that people want to live for. Yeah, uh, yeah. become less, less easy. So stopping that was is great and i think it was good that you highlighted there that without exercise which is probably worth elaboration because we know exercise would be good for these people but we know that one not everyone's able to do exercise and i think exercise physiologists often forget that because Mm. it's there's often this within our field exercises panacea for everything it will solve all your woes and it's not going to solve all your woes it's great but some people can't do it, mm. uh, physically can't do it, and some people don't know how to do it, and a lot of people don't want to do it. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. Uh, so trying to get everyone to exercise, I think, is good, and we should still keep doing that, but I think we also need to realise it's not it's not going to work perfectly. Yeah. And if it does, it'll take a long time to get there. So if we can get a nutrient 
and particularly something like a fish oil that is a capsule that people pop and it's not overly invasive. If you don't like swallowing pills, then that's possibly not ideal. But you can get it in drink form as well now. Yeah. There is other ways you can you can take it. So it's not it's not a big issue. Then I think that's ideal because even in that six month study, we found muscle strength, I think, declined in the control group by about two or three percent. Oh wow. Uh, so even in relatively healthy people yeah older people in a six-month period we were we were able to pick up declines in uh and in, in muscle strength because when i'm saying there was a 10 percent effect of krill oil we found the krill oil group increased by about seven or eight percent and the control group decreased by about two or three percent yeah so the the treatment effect is the difference between those two it's yeah. 10 percent so uh which is another reason why it's very important to have control groups in in such studies as well because if you just had a an active group and you found no effect actually that could be a good effect because they're not declining yeah, uh, yeah. in this case we found it did go in the upward direction which is which is good so i think it's really promising from that point of view that if we can get people to exercise we should still promote that but we need to and this was hit home to me because i think i was quite exercise is great and you see people on Twitter. Oh, why? Why do people just not go and lift weights when they're older? That'll stop them being. I mean, that's it's it's quite naive, really. And it was a grant body that actually, following my first study that I mentioned with the exercise and the fish oil, I sent in another one to kind of expand that. Mm-hmm. And within that, I had an exercise group and a non-exercise group looking at fish oil, and the the review panel came back and said. The non-exercise side is very interesting, but the exercise side of it, that's useless because you're never going to get everyone to exercise anyway. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's a bit mean. And I was really, what's he talking about? He doesn't know anything. That's just silly. And then after I kind of obviously calmed down and thought about it, I thought, yeah, he's probably right. Do you know what? Like, <laughs> I am one of those people on Twitter that like, why don't you just get out there and lift weights? <laughs> no, not, Sorry, not, I've offended you. no, 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 not really. But it's actually like, it's, um, you forget the small bubble with which you live, you know, and you forget how, you know, we're really lucky because we enjoy exercise and yeah. people around us enjoy it. And it's actually just a way of life. And of course I am a little bit more, um, empathetic to I understand the public health concern and look you know for thousands and thousands and millions of years we didn't have to think about exercising and so the fact that we now yeah. have to think about being active is actually quite you know yeah. quite a modern um, concept if you think ancestrally about it oh, definitely yeah and it's the same it's the same with diet as well to be honest because mm. there's, you see a lot of people a lot of people criticize obese people for their diet and why don't you just eat this, that, and the other? And for a lot of people, one, maybe the knowledge of how to prepare food for that is, is not there, but the access and the, the ability to afford good, healthy food is, is just not possible, or, the, or people's lives doesn't allow it. There's totally. a lot more going on for some people. So it's the same with exercise. And I think, I think people are, as you say, are becoming more empathetic and people do understand, but you do still hear the loud voices that, that, that maybe don't quite get that and it's not just I mean politicians do the same that why don't people just do this yeah well off people tell poor people to just pull their socks up and go on and I created a company from scratching and earn billions of pounds why don't you yeah 
if it was that easy we'd all do it yeah, exactly yeah you know people forget I think mm-hmm. that choice and opportunity comes to people who almost have choice and opportunity from the get-go exactly. and it's not that yeah. you know it's not just you know, that whole idea of if you like the American dream you can have it all yeah. well, maybe some people um Stuart so this might be getting into the weeds a bit um and I do see the time so don't worry I'm I'm, I'm cognizant of that um yeah. muscled fiber type so were you looking like was there scope to look at a response in the different muscle tissue or no I, I talk like I know a lot about it. I'm not I'm quite ignorant actually but um yeah anything kind of in the in the uh either that you've studied or that you will be looking into in that space and the stuff that we've done so far, no, we've we've not we've not done anything like that. Uh, I think I'm sure I'm trying to think. I'm sure some of Stu Phillips stuff where they did stuff with the omega threes and they did the uh, they did a kind of unloading protocol, the kind of mobilization protocol. They took biopsies before and after, and I'm sure they did fiber type cross sectional area. I I don't think there was any major fiber type differences that spring to mind uh, in there so it's not anything that's really been on my radar i mean the stuff we did in animal stuff a long time ago as you often do in animal stuff you you take out a kind of fast and a slow twitch fiber uh in there and to, i'll be honest i can't exactly remember if we found anything different within them i don't mm. think we did so it's not anything that's majorly been on my radar, mm. really, to be honest. Uh, I think it, with a lot of things, it, it probably will be a, a mediating factor and uh, that often the type 2 fibres are more susceptible to hypertrophy than the type 1 fibres. Mm-hmm. So it could well be that that could be one of the, again, a predictor of response or a mediator of the magnitude of response. But... I think just with the the fact in these studies it would be it's, it would it's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is is the main reason why? Because in the, in that krill oil study we did, we originally wanted to take biopsies, and it to start to look at the mechanisms more, and to start to look at this kind of stuff. But we we ended up dropping it because we decided to focus more on getting big numbers through to to make us really confident that we were seeing the main effect yeah. first before we started to to look more at that side of things. So. I think once now we're kind of confirming the main effect and hopefully we can do a bigger trial than that. I think then looking at the mechanistic side and the mediator side, I think that side of stuff will start to pop up on our radars and start to be more more something we look at as, as mm. well. And uh, we've talked, obviously a lot of most of your research or that we've talked, discussed has been in the older population. Do you see any scope for um, the you? the investigating the effects of omega-3s and just dysfunctional tissue like in people with poor metabolic health control or or anything like that could there be um, a similar response or is that really like you haven't we don't know uh, we we don't we don't know i mean the the stuff the kind of kevin Tipton stuff i mentioned earlier that was in young people and there's been some stuff looking at protein synthesis in young but it's not uh, it's not found anything major, but as I said, that there was interactions with protein in there and it was possibly the, the response was saturated. So I don't think there's been any studies that have really looked at it in younger people, but I, 
I I think it I think it is something that would be useful to look at because we you know, we're looking at older people where they have this anabolic resistance and we're maybe assuming that the omega threes are helping with the anabolic resistance, but it's possibly not working through that mechanism and it's working through and it's driving muscle mass through an independent mechanism. Mm. Uh, so that would then mean that there is still scope for in young people. And I do have interest obviously in more metabolic side of things and people with type 2 diabetes do tend to be older, mm. but not, not so much now. You'll find quite a fair bunch of 25 year olds that have type 2 diabetes. It wouldn't be that much of a challenge. And people with type 2 diabetes also have accelerated muscle loss and muscle function. And we've shown that things like grip strength are strong predictors of the excess cardiovascular risk that people with type 2 diabetes have. So I do actually have a study planned where we, I do some work with colleagues in Kuwait and we're hoping to do a study there where Kuwait's a country where there are high obesity levels and high type 2 diabetes levels. Uh, and we're hoping to do a study there where we look at krill oil on muscle function in people with two, type 2 diabetes mm. uh, to, to look at that. By virtue of the pop, we're not going to restrict age to be just older or just younger, but we probably will, by virtue of that population, end up with a younger. Normally with these studies, you end up with 45 to 50 being the kind of mean age We'll get some older, some younger mm. in there, but that'll be mean age. So I think that'll be interesting to see whether it is working on age per se, aging populations per se, older populations, or whether it is useful for muscle dysfunction mm. and more, more generally, because then that opens up a whole variety of areas. We know that rheumatoid arthritis, people lose muscle, cancers, there's obviously muscle loss. And there has been quite a lot of fish oil work in, in cancer already, yeah. actually. Uh, but there's a lot of then areas for use of omega-3 fatty acids, things like, and I guess with Stu Phillips, immobilization work, you've got things like return from recovery from injury yeah. and these kind of things as well that it, it can become useful for as well. So I think there's a lot of scope for for wider wider use as well and wider study. I don't think we're ready there for saying to people that they should be using it, we're in these situations, but I think it's it's areas where there's a lot of data to say this is worth looking at in this population. Yeah, and and I guess uh, pregnant women aside, and you know small little subpopulations, most people would probably benefit from the addition of say oily fish in their diet, or you know there may be scope for other you know like fish oil supplementation or things like that. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I'm. I'm focusing on the on the muscle side of things, but as as we kind of at, at that conference, Philip Calder very nicely illustrated the the lots of other things that omega three fatty acids are useful for. So, yeah, I think from a general health point of view, there's there's a definite um, there's data out there already that we should be getting people to increase their omega three fatty acid consumption. Yeah. Uh, and I think guys. As we talk about, even in younger people, once once you get to, once you're at 35, 40, sadly, that's when muscle mass starts to go down mm. and muscle function starts to go down anyway. So though people aren't sarcopenic and they're far from sarcopenic, we should be thinking about it at that point as well. Yeah. 
and we know a lot of people don't do exercise and don't do resistance exercise in particular. So strategies like this, even then, would be would be a useful thing as well in those in that wider population. So yeah, yeah. for sure. And I always feel a bit like oh stink when I hear that the older population is like thirty five plus. Because it can't, you know, yeah. like, but that is when you kind of things do start heading uh, downhill, and so yeah. as much. As I had forty, uh, forty last year, forty last year, oh. uh, and so now in my lectures, I'm seeing it's about thirty-five, forty when things start. Oh. I know, you know, it's like you're in your twilight years, basically. <laughs> Every uh, year around the sun all. is just another, you know, what a win. Well, it's all downhill from here. Isn't yeah, it? apparently. Oh. Hey, Stuart. Um, one final question: Do you eat fish? Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that because this is this is this is a source of much amusement with one of my my colleagues, Oliver Whitard. Uh, that I don't eat fish at all. Mate. I I really I really don't like fish. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know? So uh, apparently, it takes just ten exposures in order to become familiar with the texture and the flavour, then start to like it. Do you know, I, I've, I I know quite about the work that's done this with changing people's taste preferences. There's a big group in London that does a lot with this and more looking at it from where you can retrain the taste palates for getting people to eat more vegetables and fruit and yeah. stuff, which I'm fine with them. <laughs> uh, and I have tr I've tried, but I just I just can't bang myself to do it. I'm very sorry, everyone. <laughs> Hypnotherapy might be another one. That's why we have supplements for people that don't maybe like or have access to oily that fish. That is true. Do you know, I love it. Me, hands up. <laughs> I love it. I love sardines, love salmon. I'm so pleased that I enjoy these, like, healthy foods. I wish I did. I, it's something I wish, I genuinely wish I, I did, and I wish I could, but I just I can't. Yeah. I'll try again, though. You've you've inspired me to try again. <laughs> 20, 10, ex, 10 exposures. Tw 2021, Stuart. New year, new you. Yeah, yeah, I've got nothing else to do. We're, lo we're in lockdown again anyway, so I might as well try something yeah, else. <laughs> Entertain myself. Challenge. Hey, um, Stuart, thank you so much for your time today. And in fact, I, I you know, we spent so much time discussing the um, Omega-3, you know, muscle mass stuff that I did not have an opportunity to ask you anything about the research you've done looking at COVID outcomes and, and anything. But hey, that might be a topic for another day. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much, and I um, yeah enjoy the rest of your day in lockdown, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. It was good to talk to you. Thank yeah. You. Lovely. Thank you. Cool team. I hope you really enjoyed that conversation. Got a little bit geeky, but hey. I'm a little bit geeky, so you could probably expect nothing less, right? So all of the details and links to the studies that we discuss and how to contact Dr. Gray directly will be in the show notes as per usual. And he's really open to uh, communicating with people about his research. You know, he just loves the fact that it's actually just getting out there into that public arena. Next week, I'm really excited actually to bring to you a conversation that I had with Dr. Susan Kleiner. So Dr. Susan Kleiner has been in the nutrition space for decades now. You know, she was re there really before there was a field in sports nutrition. I had the pleasure of chatting to her all about the early days of that sports nutrition field how she got involved in the muscle function, how muscle worked, and how this changed her perspective on 
how to fuel athletes. And we have a really good discussion of how the field has changed over time and her founding position in the International Society of Sports Nutrition, which is one of my go-tos for the position stands on different nutrients and really up-to-date scientific and credible information that is out there to help guide both practitioners and athletes themselves. So that's next week. And uh, until then, you can catch me on social media as per usual at Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Twitter and on Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or head over to my website and sign up to one of my meal plans. That's one of the best ways to support the shows. It's a really high value awesome program, nutrition coaching, you get one-on-one contact with me, you get shopping lists, you get meal plans for 28 days, you get my weekly emails on all the things that I'm geeking out about that I want to share with you and you get access to my members only forum as well where we have a good Q&A. So if you're a bit of a geek or you just want some credible information on nutrition and how to progress to your goals absolutely go over to my website i also do one-on-one consultations until then if you're enjoying the show and you haven't yet done this please head over to your podcasts platform and leave a five-star review it would be the best way for me to get this information out there The more that people review the show, the more that people hear about it, and the better it is that I'm doing my job to reach that goal. Cool team. So until next time, have a sad week.